Hi, my name is Chester Elton, best-selling author of Anxiety at Work, and I'm delighted to be on the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. 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 Hi, and welcome to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. My name is Molly Jean de Dieu, and I'm the founder of Emotional Inclusion in the Workforce. We call on companies to invest in a trained therapist in their organizations to oversee the mental health of their employees in a sustainable way. You've heard the word therapist? Wait and hear us out. While emotional intelligence is all about the knowing, emotional inclusion is all about the doing. The doing of providing tailored mental health care to each company while respecting their organizational DNA. This podcast is aimed to open up the conversation with global leaders, movers and shakers who are advocates for emotional inclusion and mental health in the workforce. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation today. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Emotional Inclusion Podcast. My guest joining us on the show today is Chester Elton. Chester has spent two decades helping clients engage their employees in organizational strategy, vision, and values. In his inspiring and always entertaining talks, Chester provides real solutions for leaders looking to build culture, manage change, and drive innovation. Chester is co-founder of The Culture Works, a global training company, and author of multiple award-winning number one New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, which have been translated into 30 languages and have sold more than 1.5 million copies. These books are All In, The Carrot Principle, The Best Team Wins, and his latest book, Anxiety at Work. His books have been called fascinating by Fortune magazine and creative and refreshing by the New York Times. Chester has appeared on NBC's Today Show, CBS 60 Minutes, and is often quoted in Fast Company, Newsweek, and the Wall Street Journal. In 2020, Global Guru's research organization ranked Chester number four amongst the world's top leadership experts and number two amongst the world's top organizational culture experts. He recently ranked number nine in the top 200 biggest voices in leadership to watch for in 2022, right behind Simon Sinek, Adam Grant, Amy Edmondson, Marshall Goldmiths, to name a few. Moreover, I'm touched by the continued infused humility and gratitude that Chester puts into his work. Here is a man who has dedicated his life's purpose to help create workplaces where employees feel engaged, enabled, energized, and know that what they do matters and makes a difference. To me, he's an inspiration, and it is such an honor to have him on the show today. And so without any further ado, Chester, a warm welcome to the show this morning. Well, thank you so much, Moni. That was a lovely introduction. I feel humbled to be on your podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to have you early on the show this morning. I know it's 8 a.m. on your end, Eastern time, and it's later in the evening here in Singapore at 9 p.m. So you might be brighter awake than I am, but it's a pleasure <laughs> to have you on. Now, as you can 
see, I have read your book, Anxiety at Work, which you co-wrote with Adrian and Anthony Gostick, literally cover to cover here and utterly dissected it. And I just really, really enjoyed all the material you put out. So let's dive in to the first topic. You wrote this book largely due to the growing place of workplace anxiety and the mounting frustration of leaders around the issue. And to quote you, you said that anxiety is leading to increased employee errors, growing burnout, workplace rage, more sick days and poor mental health. And in America, workplace anxiety is estimated to cost some $40 billion a year in lost productivity, errors in healthcare costs, while stress is estimated to cost more than $300 billion US dollars. Now, I mean, these are huge figures that we're talking about here. And can you please share with us the theory behind the duck syndrome and how it plays a part in this larger picture? Sure, sure. You know, first and foremost, I want to thank Anthony Gostick. Anthony is Adrian's son, and he was the one that really pushed us to write this book. You know, he's a classic millennial. He's uh, in his mid-20s. He's getting his master's and doctorate at USC and stem cell research and so on. A really, really smart kid and has suffered from anxiety and those kinds of things. I've known Tony almost his whole life, right? And it was Anthony that said, hey, uh, are you guys going to write on anxiety? We said, oh, no, you know, we write on culture and leadership and all that positive stuff. You know, we just finished writing our book, Leading with Gratitude. Yeah. It's always upbeat and positive. Why would we write on anxiety? That's, you know. Yeah. And he said, you know, you oldies, you never talk about this. He said, but my generation, it's all we talk about. If you're really going to be experts in workplace culture and leadership, you need to take a deep dive on this. And so we did. So total props to Anthony for pushing us to write this book. And the idea of the duck syndrome came to us from Stanford University, actually. It was really interesting. We found that these students were calling each other ducks. We thought, well, that's an odd thing. You know, it's not their mascot. <laughs> so why are we calling each other ducks? And they said, look, here at Stanford, it's a big deal to get in. And everybody's super smart. Everybody's totally put together. Everybody lives a perfect life. I mean, it's like a duck gliding across the pond. What we don't understand is that underneath, those ducks are paddling like mad. They're doing everything they can to seem you know, cool and put together. But one of the students even said, you know, I even think about the little ducks behind the mama duck. Uh -huh. And they're all looking at each other and they all look like they're doing great. And yet they're all paddling like mad. So this idea of the facade that right. we put on to all our friends and family, that we are so put together. We've got the world by the tail, you know, and yet we all suffer from some kind of anxiety. So that duck syndrome was a nice insight. And you know this, Molly, look, everybody suffers from anxiety. I mean, there's a range, clearly. When we're at conferences, we say, raise your hand if you've never been anxious at work. Well, if somebody raises their hand, the one thing we do know is they're not telling the truth, right? Mm -hmm. It's normal. And that's why I love the work that you're doing in emotional inclusion is we've got to normalize the conversation around mental health. Yes. In all of this, you suggest that leaders actually should not try to become therapists and that it is basically vital that organizations turn to specialists to provide counseling 
which is exactly, of course, what we preach at Emotional Inclusion. And in your words, to quote you, you say, for employees who are feeling anxiety at any level, referral to a licensed counselor can be extremely helpful. And you continue on with saying, to be perfectly clear, we're very big fans of offering mental health assistance. Now, could you tell us a little bit why you are so adamant about that position for all of those out there who, unlike yourself and I, are still unconvinced. Yeah, great segment. And I'm so appreciative of you bringing that up. You know, our generation, and I say our, me and Adrian, the generation that we grew up in, this was a topic that was absolutely taboo. Our solutions to mental health were rub some dirt on it and get back in the game. You know, slap a smile on that face, turn that frown upside down. And we both in our families experienced a lot of anxiety and depression and so on. And I will tell you that, quite frankly, initially, I handled it badly because that was my go-to. You know, millions of kids are going to get up and go to school today. Be one of them. (laughs) My reference is, hey, I grew up in this ridiculously happy family. So are you. You know, what's the problem? Jump out of bed, throw your fist in the air. And it was through a lot of error and trial and error and a lot of pain, actually, that we finally got good help, got good therapists, and the results were remarkable. I mean, it changed everything. Now, the reason it's so important in the workplace is as we started to look at just the raw data, 90% of employees don't feel comfortable talking to their boss and their immediate supervisor about mental health, 90%. So there's only one in 10 that say, hey, boss, I'm burned out. I need a day off. Well, the flip side of that is when we looked at pre-pandemic numbers, it was about 18% of employees said they suffered from some kind of anxiety disorder. You're on the spectrum where it's impacting your work, your ability to get to work, to do your job and so on. You look now, two years later, it's at 30% overall. It's at 42% for workers in their 20s and early 30s. Mm -hmm. And so we take a look at that and say, gosh, at 42%, I mean, you're approaching half your workforce, right, that are younger. Well, if they showed up, if 40% of your workers in their 20s and early 30s showed up with broken legs, we'd go, whoa, we got a problem. We got to figure this out. And yet when it's mental health, we kind of go, ah, yeah, well, you know. So this idea that your manager is going to be your therapist, your manager, your supervisor is going to know exactly what to do, of course, is ridiculous. What people that are finally comfortable enough to admit that they need help when they go to their supervisor, by the way, they know you're not a certified therapist. When they go into your office, they don't see the certificates, right? All they want you to do is they want you to listen. And Mm -hmm. we can all do that, right? We can all listen. And once you listen and figure that out, then go get the help that you need, whether it's a certified therapist, a group that you can join, whatever it is. And so that's why it's so important. And understand that your managers and supervisors don't have that expertise. And they know they don't have that expertise. Together, you can find it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And to be quite frank with you, Tester, it's music to my ears because I couldn't agree with you more. And I like to say to leaders whom we have our program with, or when I'm speaking with HR managers, I always repeat to them in the most humble way possible that it's not the fact that they lack any social capabilities of, as you said, just being able to listen and work through problems with their employees. But unless they're equipped with a medical degree, they simply cannot go ahead and truly process the emotions that are at stake 
again, through a medical lens. And that's, I think, what's really required, especially now in this global pandemic we're still all bathing in, which has aggravated mental health even more so within the corporate landscape. So I couldn't agree with you more. Now, not only are we bathing in a global pandemic, but the pace of change in business has also accelerated considerably. And as you point out in the book, most leaders haven't adapted their communication approach or frequency to help taper anxiety and fear. Now, how is this translating into the workforce and amongst our millennials and Gen Zers specifically, do you think? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you bring this up because this is really recent, as early as yesterday. (laughs) You know, Adrian and I do a lot of executive coaching and we often get the question, you know, uh, how can I better communicate? How can I do this better? How can I really engage my employees? And one of the things that we really encourage leaders to do is to get rid of the annual review. You know, you give somebody a goal in January and then you check in in December. Well, that's so to your point, the speed of change in business is ridiculous right now. To be able to predict in January what's going to be impactful in December is unfair. So we really encourage leaders to do frequent check-ins. And just say, hey, we're working on this project. How's it going? How can I help? Is there anything that might cause the project to be delayed or free to miss a deadline? Do you need more resources? And the whole idea is, how is it going? How can I help? You know, you're a resource. So this is, you're saying, look, we get that things change. We get that you might need more now than you did yesterday. You may need less, you know, and let's keep the communication open. The other thing is, as leaders, to just be aware of changes in behavior. You know, one of the worst things you can do for your employees, if you think they're being stressed out or they're on that verge of some kind of anxiety disorder or even outright depression is to say, hey, Molly, um, I was listening to this podcast today and they were talking about how you spot anxiety. You're anxious, aren't you? (laughs) I can tell, (laughs) you know, I've got my anxious radar up. You know, that just drives people deeper into protecting themselves. So we really looked at what is the language that you can use to open the door. And Mm. the language is, I've noticed, I've noticed, by the way, Molly, I've noticed that for somebody who's never late, you're starting to show up late. You know, for somebody that's always participating and really engaged, I notice you're a little more withdrawn. Now, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Mm. And you always start with work. I've noticed that your work isn't quite to the standard that you normally are known for. And then you make it safe. You know, we talk a lot about psychological safety. You know, I can speak up and I won't be. We like to raise the bar and say, how do you make it emotionally safe? Hey, you know, we really care about you. We really want this project to go well. So how's it going? How can I help? And I can't help but notice that things just seem a little off in the quality of your work and how you engage. Is there anything I can do to help? Now, sometimes, Molly, it's a one-off. You know, somebody who never loses their temper, loses their temper, and it's a one-off. Once you start seeing a bit of a trend, Mm. right, you want to address that. And that simple phrase, I've noticed, can really be helpful to open the door and make it safe for people to talk about what's really going on. That's so interesting. And it's such a good tip. And I'm sure that many of our listeners here will use that tip as well, myself included. So thank you so much for that. And actually, you were also stating such an interesting point in the book regarding it, that 87% of millennials are also ranking their job security as a top priority when looking for a job. So really that notion of care, as you described through the, hey, I've noticed, can go a really, really long way. 
So we're talking here of a much more human and less transactional workplace of tomorrow here where organizations are purpose and employee driven. Yet, how do you convince companies to do this when they're either still in crisis mode or in slow recovery gear? You talk about the concept of loosening our grip during tough times. Could you please tell us more? Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the book, by the way. So thanks for bringing it up. Uh, Nicole Malakowski is mm-hmm. this fighter pilot, you know, and mm-hmm. she lies for the Air Force, you know, in their demonstration team, the Thunderbirds, right? And it was really interesting to me that she, as a fighter pilot, said, look, when you're in a dogfight, you are the master and commander of your ship, or, you know, of your plane, and you hit turbulence and stuff, and you grab that flight stick, and you are in control. Well, when you're flying in a demonstration team, and you're only a few feet away from each other, and you're flying at 400 miles an hour, upside down, you've got to fly differently. Mm -hmm. And if you hit turbulence with your demonstration team and you clamp down on the flight stick, you can cause what's called pilot-induced oscillation. In other words, you bounce your plane around and that puts everybody in danger. So her flight captain said, look, loosen your grip. She said, actually, she said, he told me to go to two fingers on the flight stick. Mm -hmm. Trust your team. Trust your team. Now she's the first woman to ever fly for the Thunderbird demonstration team. So breaking the glass ceiling, all these things. By the way, follow her on Instagram and look her up, Nicole Malikowski. She's remarkable in so many ways. And that was a great, not just great flying tip, right? It was a great leadership tip. That look, as you're going through hard times, as leaders, we want to all of a sudden micromanage and we're in everybody's everything, right? There are times when you got to step back and say, look, I've got to trust my team. Here's what we need to do and have at it. And that creates trust. That creates emotional safety as well. That look, if I didn't think you could do the job, I wouldn't have hired you. And so I'm going to let you, with your talent, solve these problems. It doesn't mean I'm never going to check in, particularly when you're in crisis mode. You say, look, we're going to have regular meetings. I'll never forget the great Alan Mulally, who was one of our favorite leaders, who saved the Ford Motor Company in 2008 to 2010. They were in crisis mode. And so he had a regular meeting every week they met to talk about where they were on their projects. You know, if they were on track, it was green. If they were behind, it was yellow. And if they were stuck, it was red. He didn't micromanage that. He wanted to know was the information, who needs help? And it was very interesting that initially that culture was so toxic and so untrusting that no one would ever dare put up a red square or even a yellow square. So until he got them to trust each other, and he talks about the first time somebody put up a red square, how that was the breakthrough moment. And he celebrated the fact that they were failing because they had the courage to admit they needed help. You know, Molly, I love that you've dissected our book. And I hope everybody listening buys a copy of Anxiety at Work. In fact, buys two copies, one for themselves and one for a friend. I want to recommend another book to you. And it's my favorite children's book of all time. It's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's uh, written by Charlie Mackesy. It's beautifully illustrated. And he would do these little sketches to encourage people during the pandemic. And he would leave them at bus stops and train stops and so on. It was just a lovely practice. Well, he put it together in a book. And the part of the book that I really love is it's a little boy that's going into the wilderness and he's afraid because of all the uncertainty. Sounds familiar, right? Mm -hmm. And he befriends this wise old mole and they free a fox from his snare and he joins their tribe. And then they make friends with a big old gentle horse. Well, as the story goes, they go through the storms, they go through all this uncertainty and the little boy's exhausted and he's on the back of the horse and he's laying down and he whispers into the horse's ear. He says, what's the bravest thing you've ever said? And the horse says, help. Mm 
Mm. And I just love that. The bravest thing you can do is ask for help. And then the horse goes on to say, asking for help doesn't mean you've given up. It means you're refusing to give up. Oh, I love that. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Put it on your list. I will. I will. Thank you so much for that one, Chester. And actually, it segues just beautifully into my next question. But I will buy the book for sure. <laughs> and it segues so well into my next question because it revolves around, as you point out, one of the most common myths around overload, right? And most managers still believe that it's obviously a failure if an employee can't keep up with their workload or if they're making more mistakes than they would usually do or whatever. But as you point out, that the most resilient of all workers experience burnout in high numbers. And We'd love to hear more of your views on this because obviously it is such a stigma still within the workforce today. Oh, sure. You know, and especially I think in younger generations where you mentioned job security is causing a lot of anxiety. So they work and work and work and work and work and work. You know, everybody thought that during the pandemic, working from home, that productivity would go down. Mm. Productivity skyrocketed, yeah. <laughs> right? For a couple of reasons. One is you had no commute. So you had more time to work. And of course, you fill the gap with work, right? And if you're uncertain about your job, what are you doing? You're trying to reach that level of perfection in everything you do. We've got a chapter on perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And unless our leaders are giving us, you know, really good feedback as to what they really want from us, you know, sometimes good is good enough. A request for some simple information doesn't mean you've got to put together a 120 slide deck PowerPoint presentation with animation and embedded videos and, and you know, yeah. that's going to yeah. go viral on Facebook. So here's the thing about that is, is that you've got to make sure that your top performers in particular, they're the best at hiding their anxiety mm -hmm. and they will never say no to an assignment because they want job security, because they want the next promotion, because they want the raise. We tell the story that Anthony shared with us. You know, he mm -hmm. was uh, doing samples from DNA, DNA samples. And they were 10 years old. And the lab leader said, Anthony, extract the DNA from these and you know, report back. Well, he's getting like seven out of 10, eight out of 10. And it's driving him crazy because he wants to be 10 out of 10. And he's not sleeping and he's not eating. And he's so worried that when he goes back to show his results, that he'll be a failure. Well, he goes back to the director of the lab and says, I'm so sorry. Seven, eight out of 10 was the best I could do. She goes, are you kidding? That's great. Those samples are 10 years old. That's about right. Hey, good for you. And his reaction at first was relief. And secondly is, why didn't you tell me that? Yeah. <laughs> why didn't you know that it wasn't going to be perfect? You know, you yeah. saved me so much anguish and so much, you know, lack of sleep and so on. Yeah. So again, you know, when you look at your top performers, you think, oh, Molly, are you kidding? Always gets it done. In fact, I give her 10 times more work than anybody else. Right? Well, that's, that's your problem right there. So we do yeah. uh, talk to leaders and teams to say, look around your team. Are we distributing the work fairly? You know, are we making sure that we're not just crushing, you know, poor Molly? Yeah. And as you say, also having anxiety is a normal human behavior for us all to have. And I think it's okay to normalize it and to not frown upon it in this sort of flawless sort of corporate landscape that we have today. And I think you speak so beautifully about it when you talk about the doctors. So of course, Adam Grant had alluded in the New York Times about the fact that more than half of doctors and a third of nurses regularly feel burned out. And that was before COVID. 
but they were even more so obviously during this pandemic, but that didn't make them any less good at what they did. It moved me. I had this light bulb moment where I really realized, if you will, that again, we need to think of leadership more holistically and for organizations to understand that really at the genesis of it all, we really are simply humans at work. No question. I love that you brought up healthcare workers. It's really interesting. Uh, Monday, I'm flying down to Pensacola, Florida to address a group of healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they show up every day and do their jobs under extraordinarily difficult conditions Mm -hmm. is really a tribute to them, to the mission, very purpose-driven. And it's really interesting. You know, you look at a lot of healthcare workers, they didn't go into that profession to get rich Mm -hmm. because, you know, the pay is good. Nobody goes and says, hey, I want to be a nurse because I want to become a billionaire. <laughs> you know, it's not gonna yeah, no, right. Clearly. <laughs> so the whole, like, yeah, the whole idea that they're purpose-driven, they do show up and they want to help. You know, you bring up a, a good point around the environment and leaders and so on and how things have radically changed due to the pandemic. If you'd asked me and Adrian three, four years ago, what are the attributes of a great leader? We'd have said, well, motivator, communicator, you know, paints the vision moving forward, paves the way for their followers to succeed. Right now, there's really only one attribute in a leader that matters, and it's empathy. Mm. And if you are not empathetic, if your people don't believe that you care about them, none of that other stuff matters. 100%. And it's so interesting that empathy is so different than sympathy, right? Other people, well, yeah, I'm very sympathetic. Yeah, that's not good, actually. Sympathy is, oh, you poor thing, right? you know, you poor, broken, winged little bird. Let me come in. I, I'm not broken. You're broken. I can help you. Sympathy to me is almost condescending, right? Empathy is, look, I know you're in a tough spot, and I may not be able to understand exactly what you're going through. I do understand that feeling, and I'm going to crawl down there with you, and I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to listen, and I'm just going to be here for you. And then let's figure out what we need to do to help you. And it's a choice that we make to sit there with Gosh. our people. Look, we're going to go into the dark together. And the biggest message I think that leaders can give to their people, especially when it gets to the point where they really are just in a state of anxiety and border depression, is that you are not alone. You are not alone. I am here for you. And I'm not a certified doctor and I don't have all the answers, but here's what I can do. I can listen. You can unburden yourself and together we can go find a solution. And boy, leaders that do that really well, They attract great talent. They keep great talent. And I love the subtitle of our book. It says, you know, get stuff done. Yeah, I like that too. It brought a little bit of lightness to it. Yeah, (laughs) that made me smile. Yeah, because, you know, it's so interesting. So many leaders say to us, well, I get all this stuff and I get out the hold the hands and be kumbaya. What about the business? Listen, get this right. You will get more stuff done and it will be better and it will be more innovative. Take the time. Believe me, it works. I absolutely adore that dissociation between sympathy versus empathy, and it's not spoken of quite enough. And thank you for bringing that up. Again, another really good tip to digest and to ponder on. Now, you believe, and so do I, by the way, in places of high trust and high candor. We've spoken a bit about that, but in your words, and again, I preach the same principle as you, so much so that I had to bring it up in this question. When you say, when employees are free to speak up and know their voices will be heard, it can increase engagement, 
enhance psychological safety and bolster self-confidence and a sense of ownership. Why is it, do you think, that companies are still struggling with it? And could you perhaps impart a few tips on how to put this into practice? How to really bring companies to a place where they can breed trustability in a way that allows not only their workforce to feel safe, but that feels also authentic. It's something that, you know, we hear also, we hear about empathy as a buzzword, but we are starting to also hear more and more about trust as a buzzword. But I've always believed that, and again, we touched a little bit about this earlier on, but if you can build trustability, authentic trustability with your staff, with your workforce, they will give it back to you a hundred times fold. But again, it's not something that is an organizational approach in most companies. It's not something that is necessarily at the top of the agenda of companies to do. And so my question is why is it do you think that companies are still struggling in working on this trustability factor? And what could be a few tips for leaders to help them impart more of that trust? Yeah, thank you for that clarification. You know, two things. One is employees still are terrified that when they make a mistake, that it will end their careers. And I know that's pretty dramatic, and yet I don't think it's overstated. So you've got to make it safe to make mistakes. One of my favorite examples of a culture that does this extremely well is WD-40. I know you've probably got a can somewhere in your house, the blue and yellow can with the red cap. You know, Don't leave home without it. They have a culture where they talk about a tribe. So we're not coworkers, we're not teammates, we're not associates, we're tribe members because in a tribe, we really look out for each other. We hunt together, you know, we eat together, we defend each other, we celebrate together. The CEO there is a wonderful friend of ours, uh, Gary Ridge, a delightful Aussie living in San Diego. One of the happiest guys you'll ever meet. And one of the reasons he's been able to create such a safe culture is he says, look, we don't make mistakes at WD-40. We have learning moments. We have learning opportunities. And he said, think about our name. It's WD-40. You know, it stands for water displacement, 40th formula. So he said, did we make 39 mistakes before we got to 40? Well, what we did is we had 39 learning opportunities, learning moments that brought us to that 40th formula. So they celebrate. They say, look, you made a mistake that what did we learn? Let's make sure we don't do it again. I mean, if you have someone making the same mistake over and over and over again, that's another issue, right? And so it's very safe for them to say, hey, I tried this and it didn't work. And let's figure out why. WD-40 has many more products than you think. You've probably got 10 Mm. in your house because of the innovation Mm. in the company that it's safe to make mistakes. So Mm. there's the first element, make it safe to make mistakes. The second is, and I love this part when we get through to leaders and we actually do this exercise. Do you know their stories? You know, you want to make it safe for people. Well, do you know their stories? Where did you come from? How did you get here? What do you want to accomplish while you're here? And where do you want to go? I mean, four really interesting questions that I guarantee you most leaders don't know about the people Mm. that work with them. Mm. We did a fascinating engagement with a group in Philadelphia, elderly care, right? And a group of eight executives. And the leader said, uh, look, our team just doesn't work very well together. And they're all very competent or they wouldn't be in the positions they're in. We just can't seem to work together very well. And I said, well, do they know each other's stories? So we took a day and we had four leaders before lunch and four after that literally sat down and shared with the group, here's where I came from. 
Here's how I grew up. Here's where I went to school. Here are the jobs I had before I got here. Here's who I am when I got here. Here's what I want to accomplish while I'm here. And here's where I want to go from here. Hmm. We even did a fun thing where we said, tell us two things you want to do before you die. <laughs> and what's on your bucket list? How, yeah. how can we help you get there, right? You want to go to the moon? How can we help you get there? Mm-hmm. And we had them talk about their heroes. What are the attributes of their heroes that they most admire? Well, it was really interesting, Molly, because the first four that went, pretty happy childhoods, you know, good relationships with their spouses and their kids and their parents and so on, and good careers. What was fascinating was right after lunch, one of the executives, and she was one of the younger ones, and one that people kind of treaded lightly around. She was a little prickly, mm-hmm. told her story. And she said, you know, I love hearing about your happy childhoods and your wonderful relationships with your parents. That's not my story. My story is I got kicked out of the house when I was 16. I'm raising two little girls on my own. Relationships in my life are completely dysfunctional. And yet the reason I'm here and work so hard is I want my daughters to have it better than me, that they can feel safe, that they can grow and develop. Well, the whole tenor of the relationship with that executive completely changed because they knew her story. Now, at the very end, we had an exercise that said, well, let's go around the room and give me one or two words to describe each member of the team. Well, if we'd done that before the exercise, I guarantee you when it came to this executive, they would have said prickly, rough around the edges, angry a lot of the times, you know, be careful. Instead, when it came to her, it was courageous, never gives up. I love that. Admiration because they knew their stories. Well, now, so weeks later, we said, Hey, how's it going with your teams? It's going great. I mean, there's a level of understanding that we didn't have before just because we knew their stories. It doesn't take a long time. You know, it's not like, Hey, let's take a week. Let's go up into the mountains. No, it's just, Hey, Molly, just so delighted to have you on the team. I'm just curious. Can I learn a little bit about you? And then model the behavior, say, You should know a little bit about me. I was born in Canada grew up in Vancouver. I'm the youngest of five boys. That'll explain a lot, right? Here's where I went to school. Here's where I met my wife. Here's a little bit about my kids. Here's why I love what I do. And here's where I want to go. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You make it safe for them to share. Now they know a little bit about you. You know more about them. Trust me. If you know their stories, things get better. They just do. Yeah. And that links to that so well to your chapter on transforming exclusion into connection, where exclusion is not always intentional by getting to know the other story. As you say, you have that window into who they are as people. And I love the story actually that you give, which is correlated to what you're saying. Well, actually you mentioned the research that Cornell University did stating that fire stations where the firefighters (laughs) ate meals together were much more effective than teams that didn't. And actually the teams that didn't in these firefighting stations were almost a little bit ashamed of saying that they didn't eat with the rest of their teams. And it links beautifully that idea to your point of connection with each other's humanity. I think that's so on point. Well, yeah. Isn't that fascinating? A simple little observation. You know, if you like each other, you eat together. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that when you break bread together, it's a sacred moment. It just is. You know, you go back to early man, you know, travelers coming through. What was the first thing you did? Oh, you must be hungry. Mm -hmm. Oh, you must be hungry. When we feed our kids, right? Isn't that the ultimate act of kindness and love? Oh gosh, a hundred percent. I grew up in British Columbia and my grandfather was from England. And what is it? Would you like some tea and biscuits? 
Let's just mm. sit down. We'll offer you a hot beverage. Just mm -hmm. Calm your nerves. Take a load off. Relax for a bit. Tell me a little bit about your story. And then let's have something to eat. You invite someone into your home to feed them. It's a wonderful gesture of compassion and love. Gosh, Chester, 100%. Now, to quote you, you mentioned that more than 2,000 years ago, Cicero called gratitude not only, quote, the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others, end quote. Yet, as we all know, there is still so little research done around gratitude in the business world. And I know that this is something that is a game changer based on what you've written. And it's also been a big foundation in your own work to practice gratitude. And can you tell us more why you think it's such a game changer? And for all the companies out there that, again, are not necessarily thinking in that mindset yet. Well, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's always a lovely way to end any conversation, right? A discussion of gratitude. You know, yeah. we talk about the fact that your human brain isn't wired to keep you happy. It's wired to keep you safe. And so that's why we look for all the danger out there, right? Gratitude is a wonderful daily practice. And I encourage those that are listening to make it a daily practice. You can't be in a state of anxiety and a state of gratitude at the same time. You know, we can't hold two emotions simultaneously. And my dad always had a great saying, you know, choose to be happy, right? So you can make a conscious choice. So when it comes to either choosing to be anxious or choosing to be grateful, choose gratitude, right? It's yeah. simple. So I'm a big fan of rituals. So what are some rituals that you can incorporate into your day as a leader and just as a person? I love keeping a gratitude journal. It's a very simple practice. You just write down three to five things that you're grateful for. And studies have shown that you don't have to do it every day. If you do it, you know, three or four times a week, it's just a reminder that in all this chaos and all this mess that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, 99% of the world is going to trade places with you in a heartbeat. I mean, in a heartbeat, I walk out my front door. I don't think that I'm going to get shot. I don't think that I'm going to, you know, there's not a revolution at my doorstep, right? I've got food in my fridge. I've got money in the bank. So we are ridiculously blessed. I've got a family that, you know, my wife that loves me and mm -hmm. kids that I adore. We've got grandkids now that have blessed our lives. So even mm -hmm. in hard times, there are always things that we can be grateful for and change that mindset, reduce your anxiety. I've got a fun tradition. I went on Amazon and ordered these little engraved stones. They're little polished stones and etched in them is the word gratitude. Mm. And I always keep two or three in my pocket. And as I'm going throughout my day, if I see someone that maybe needs a little pick me up or somebody that's really doing a, one of those great jobs that nobody says thank you for. I'll give you a great example. The other day, the guys that pick up the trash and the garbage where I live, they kind of come through the backyards. That's where everybody puts so they don't have to go up and down the hill. Right. <laughs> and they were coming through and I said, hey, guys, just really quick. I know you're really busy and you've got a schedule. You know, you pick up my garbage every week, never fail. And you guys always do such a great job. I just want to give you a little token to let you know that your really good work hasn't gone unnoticed. And our family really appreciates you. And I gave him these two little stones. Well, the one guy lit up. He said, you know, thank you so much. This means, that, you know, thank you. No one ever says thank you for us doing this. And it's not a job you and I want to do. We don't want to run around picking up garbage. And yet these guys do it and they do it joyfully. Mm. And it picked up their day. It doesn't yeah. cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time. And treat yourself to a little bit of gratitude and share it with someone. I'm on this little WhatsApp group. There's about six of us and we post three to five things that we're grateful for every day. And we read each other's gratitude list and it's just inspiring. 
particularly when it comes to dealing with anxiety, that ability to just step back. You know, we talk about eight strategies and the eighth strategy is gratitude. Treat yourself and treat those around you to a little bit of gratitude. It lifts them up and it lifts you up. I always joke, Molly, that this is stuff your mom and dad taught you when you were five years old, right? It's always better to give than to receive because when you give, you always, you always receive. So it's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you. You know, gratitude, last word on that is it's an extraordinarily effective way to lead your teams in business. We've got all kinds of data. We wrote a book, Leading with Gratitude. Trust me, the numbers, if you lead with gratitude, you'll have more engaged, happier employees. We talk about if you're happy at work, you're 150% more likely to be happy in your personal life. So we've got a responsibility as leaders to send our people home happy virtually or physically. It's a great way to lead. It's a great way to run a business. It's an even better way to just live. Trust me on this one, that when you live a life of gratitude, you're more relaxed, you're more aware, you're a better support to your spouse, your partner, your kids, your family, your community. When you put gratitude at the center of your life, it's just a better way to live. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. Chester, it is such a perfect finale and you're such an inspiration. It's just been a great conversation. Thank you so much. So keeping in mind our very involved audience on the Emotional Inclusion Podcast, where can people connect with you and continue to engage with you and your work? Well, thank you for that, Molly. You know, I appreciate that you use your platform to magnify our message as well. LinkedIn is a great place to find us. We publish a wonderful twice a month newsletter called The Gratitude Journal. And we bring in guest authors and we highlight our podcast as another great place, our Anxiety at Work podcast, where we bring in experts that share their knowledge and their practice with us. And thecultureworks.com is a great place. We do a lot of executive coaching. We do a lot of work in culture with organizations. And as you might guess, gratitude and dealing with anxiety is at the center of all that. So if I were to point you to three places, I would say go to thecultureworks.com, follow us on LinkedIn, sign up for the Gratitude Journal, and take a look at our podcast on anxiety. Great tips in there. Share it with your friends. And again, Molly, thank you so much for being willing to share your audience with us and the wonderful work that you're doing. You know, it's the tide that raises all ships. And so thank you for shining a light on this very, very important subject. Thank you so, so, so much, Chester. I'm so grateful for you and for you coming on the Emotional Inclusion Podcast today in your early hours of the day and choosing to spend them with us. As you know, I'm on a mission to up-level emotional inclusion in the workforce, and your support in this endeavor means so much. So I trust that our listeners will take in all the advice and insights you have provided with us today. Thanks again, Chester. You bet. A delight. And you know, Singapore is one of my favorite places on the planet, by the way. I love that you live there. And so next time you go eat some really good chili crab, just know that there's a guy in New Jersey who loves chili crab and is delighted that you're enjoying it. Well, you'll just have to come and visit then. We'll wait for you. Thanks so much, Chester. Thanks for listening to my conversation today. We trust you enjoyed it. And if you have a chance, please rate and review, hit subscribe to receive new episodes and pass it along to a friend. And if you wish to know more on the emotional inclusion program we offer to companies, please visit emotionalinclusion.com. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, be bold and be brave.